This is the Registry Podcast. Hello, this is your host, Vladimir Bosanitz, and today's episode is a bonus show from one of our recently hosted webinars. Today's focus is the San Francisco commercial real estate market, where we invited a number of brokers to talk about what they're seeing there and how the first half of the year is shaping our understanding of the second half. I hope you'll find these conversations informative and that you'll pick up a nugget of information that may give you more insight into the dynamics of today's market. Enjoy the show. All right. Uh, well, we're going to get started here. Um, and while others are still logging on, I uh, want to just welcome everybody and uh, you know say hello really quickly. I want to uh, give us an opportunity to introduce the speakers this morning. Um, before we do, I also would like to uh, thank our sponsor, Alliance Roofing, who's been um, a great partner in helping us put these uh, events and webinars together. So thank you, Alliance, for your uh, for your continued support of, um, of this event and, and others. Um, so really quickly, um, we, what I would like to do is just have all of our speakers say hello, introduce themselves, and uh, um, just name company and sort of the area in in, uh, in which you work. Uh, Rebecca, you're the first one on the screen here, so I'm going to start start with you. Okay, great. Thanks, Vlad. Hi, everyone. My name is Rebecca Perlmutter, and I'm at CBRE. I'm part of our national partners team, which is an industrial team. We collaborate nationally. And I cover the West Coast industrial capital markets. Thanks, Rebecca. Dusty? Hi, I'm uh, Dustin Dolby. I'm with Colliers uh, with a focus on multifamily investment sales with Brad Lager Messino and James DeVincenti, uh, hyper-focused on San Francisco, but also do the greater Bay Area. Wonderful. Eric? Hey, uh, Eric Hansen. I'm at JLL. Part of the capital markets group, uh, I focus on investment sales advisory uh, throughout the Bay Area, but uh, kind of grew up uh, in the San Francisco market, so near and dear to my heart. Office buildings, by the way. Great, great. Uh, Alex? Alex guest with uh, CBRE um, on the urban retail leasing team. We work with uh, landlords and tenants um, and large-scale uh, urban developments in the San Francisco um, Bay Area on leasing and uh, placemaking consulting. Awesome. Thank you. And Nick? Uh, Nick Slonick, uh, Avis & Young, uh, San Francisco office leasing, uh, focused mostly on uh, landlord and tenant representation. Wonderful. Well, thank you all. Um, so we're going to um, uh, organize our conversation around, um, you know, everyone's topic a little bit. So basically, what we'll do is we'll go through the multifamily first, then retail, then we'll go into industrial, and then we'll uh, close the conversation with leasing and investment sales during the uh, during our panel. Uh, for any one of you who would like to ask questions, please do so in the bottom. There's a there's a Q and A section there. I'm going to monitor that as we as we go along, and I'll try to incorporate your uh, questions in our in our conversation. So we won't have a former Q and A. This will be kind of our our way of um, doing it. So um, we're going to kick it off with multifamily. So the rest of the speakers, if you can, um, you know, mute your cameras and mute your microphones, um, we'll we'll get started here. So um, Dusty, you're you're the 
first one on the on the list here uh, to yeah. to to interrogate about about what's happening in the in the in the market. Um, let's start with a couple of questions around sort of you know what is the state of the multifamily market today in San Francisco. Yeah, on a macro level, we've seen our transaction volume slow pretty dramatically. I mean, we're off in this year, year to date, about 50%. And that's due to buyers and sellers grappling with where are values. I mean, when you have interest rates move as dramatically as they have, it really changes the underwriting and you know, how much money can people can pay for these buildings. And unfortunately, with real estate, it's a, it's a trailing sort of data set. When a building sells... It's representative of that building being marketed three months prior because that's how long our deals take to close. And so with that, we're doing a lot of education, both on the selling side and the buyer side, You know, not just colliers, but all brokers in this market, trying to educate buyers and sellers on where the new norm is. And traditionally, over the last six years, we've been selling buildings on average at a high three cap. That's transitioned this year to the average cap rate being above five. And so you're talking about a huge increase in cap rate expansion and therefore values have dropped significantly. And so whenever there's that big of a shift, you're going to see transaction volume slow as people try and understand the market. Have you seen uh, that disparity also uh, between class A, class B, and class C? Um, how how wide of a of a of a change can um, you know can you can you experience in those areas? Yeah, the unique thing about San Francisco is we're not so much focused on class A, class B, and class C, but neighborhoods. And so what we like to do is divide it into sort of quadrants or districts. Anything north of California, you're talking about Pacific Heights, Cal Hollow Marina, is still trading at somewhat of a premium to the rest of the market. And there's been a divergence of interest in different neighborhoods. I mean, People rent apartments, they need jobs, they're very reliant on the office market. The office market, which the rest of the group will touch on has you know lapsed and been a laggard in recovering in this market and therefore downtown and adjacent neighborhoods have not recovered from a rental standpoint and so we're seeing a lot of the capital gravitate towards the better neighborhoods because they have an understanding of what they can rent units for there's lower vacancy and so there's been a, a bifurcation of the market as a result of that um, what's happened on a sort of price per door? I mean, valuations have, have you know gone down, so I imagine um, that number is going to go down significantly. Also, uh, what what are what are you sort of seeing um, in uh, in that regard? Yeah, twenty nineteen, we're about call it high four hundreds to low five hundreds a door market wide. This year, we're closer to three twenty a door. So very significant. And that's because rents fell during COVID. I mean, our rents dropped about 25% and cap rates expanded. So it was you know, two, two negative effects on our market. Now, the exciting thing about that and the bright side is a lot of markets were appreciating during the pandemic. We're still in a recovery phase. So our belief at Collier's even if we go into recession and on a macro level, the United States struggles on an economic basis, we think San Francisco is going to get to continue to upswing because we there was so much carnage uh, during the COVID period. Um, what's going on with the occupancy across the city? 
Vacancy, again, it goes back to neighborhoods. If you sure. want to rent a one bedroom in the marina, you're going to have to shell out 3,500 bucks. You know, questions asked. There's very low vacancy in those neighborhoods. Uh, but if you want to come downtown, we're probably still at a 10 to 15% vacancy, especially for unremodeled units. What happened is a lot of the mom and pops were writing the coattails of the institutions and not remodeling their units. But with such a low vacancy rate, they could get renters in. They're having to deal with now renovating their units because there's so much vacancy and space and amenities have become the new luxury. If you're working from home, you want to have a dishwasher, you want to have a washer and dryer. And so with that, the housing stock needs to change. And that takes some time because people need to get capital, remodel units, and then do the lease up. Yeah. And when we had a prep call, you mentioned there's a sort of boundary of, you know, California Street, I, I suppose, north end of it and south end of it, uh, kind of are bifurcating the market. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and kind of, you know, what what it means for the city in general and um, how how significant is it? Yeah, I think in any sort of recovery, you're going to see a concentration of renters and capital gravitate towards the A and B locations. And the reassuring thing is with how high the vacancy rate is in those neighborhoods, you're going to start to see that trickle down to some of the other neighborhoods like Knob Hill, downtown, the Mission. And so I think we're on the upswing overall. Now, values are going to stay somewhat stagnant as we start to unravel this interest rate um, situation and with yep. how high they've come so quickly. But I do, I do think it's re reinvigorated in the core neighborhoods and you're going to start to see that spread to some of the second and tertiary markets in the city. Yeah. Um, the Veritas sale is sort of a big anticipated event. I would, I would argue in the, in the city, um, you know, it's going to be thousands of units uh, as a, as a, as a portfolio. Tell us a little bit about that and kind of the impact that might have on the market. Uh, but also what are you seeing uh, from, from your, and your, you know, Intel about, you know, who's bidding, what the interest for it is, um, and any sort of insight about that? Yeah, it, it is very interesting because typically this market is a one and twos market, which by that I mean, you have people buying one 10 unit building, one 20 unit building. And the thesis of these big local operators was let's compile all these units, get them together and make it a more institutional platform. And so when you see such a large amount of product come to market, it garners a lot of interest. And it's been very encouraging, at least what, from what I've heard and the conference calls that we've been on, to see familiar faces and new faces come to the market. Uh, just as a data point, 60% of the sales that have closed this year have been from buyers that have never bought a building or didn't buy a building in the last 10 years. So all the news about People leaving San Francisco, I mean, that may be true. I'm, I'm sure there's antidotes to support that. But from our data, 60% of the new capital that's come in is brand new capital. And so that's very exciting. And the same was true for who stepped up for the larger portfolios that are on the market. I mean, there was offers from groups from LA, New York, from foreign entities. And that's very exciting because once that trades, that's a backstop of where values are. And then everything will start to build off that. Yeah. Now you mentioned also that uh, some of these in, in, in institutional folks uh, did um, leave over the last couple of years. There was sort of a you know concern that San Francisco was not you know um, the right place to you know invest at the right amount of you know at 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 that point in time. 
Um, do, do you think this Veritas sale potentially could, could turn that? Uh, do you think it's just this particular portfolio that's interesting them that's um, interest to them, or do you think it's going to you know segue into into a you know return to the to the market? Yeah, the tricky thing with San Francisco has always been education on the market. I mean, we have some of the most stringent rent control in the United States, if not the most stringent. And yeah. so, if you're if you're sitting on family money or institutional capital in another city, it takes you some time to understand what sort of product type you're buying, and the risks and the rewards of doing so. So the best thing about these portfolios that have come out is it's caught the attention of big players who have taken the time to educate themselves on the market. And with that, and with a new reset of pricing once it sells, I think you're going to see uh, invigoration in this market and a lot of people re-enter because now they're educated on how it works. Now, they'll be shepherded by a local sponsor who's here helping them understand the market and executing a business plan. But anytime you have big institutions chasing capital, it's great for, or chasing buildings, excuse me, it's great for values. Yeah. 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 Um, in terms of, uh, and we talked, we, you know, touched on this a little bit about, you know, the occupancy o- overall. Um, what, what kind of incentives are you seeing that, um, landlords are having to put up? Um, what, what is happening across the market? Yeah, typically it's always tricky with rent control product because there's sure. some laws and regulations you need to work around. But a lot of people are in some of the more impacted areas, so downtown adjacent, you can still probably get a free month's rent, um, some sort of gift card for some amenity, like maybe a visa card or some move-in expenses. But that's very focused on the downtown Knob Hill Civic Center areas. In the core neighborhoods, you know, Richmond, Sunset, Marina, you can't really get any free rent. Now, the market's not as hot as it used to be, but people are still able to execute leases at somewhat of a premium. I mean, you're talking four or five bucks a square foot. That's not cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what about the development side? What is What is happening there? It's been very slow. And I, I think Eric will be able to touch on this just from yeah. a development standpoint. But as interest rates go up and construction costs go up, land values drop. And what it, what you've really seen happen is, so San Francisco, a lot of the nonprofits have received a lot of money from Gavin Newsom and HomeKey and some local institutions as well. They're doing some development deals, but they've actually been one of the more prolific buyers in San Francisco this year for rent control product. Because if they're, if they're able to execute deals at 350 a door versus developing at 800 plus a door, yeah. it, it, they can make the dollar stretch. And so that's been kind of a silver lining as a lot of other institutions have sat on their hands. We've had this influx of uh, local nonprofits that have at least put pen to paper and have actually executed on a few deals this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, what do you think will shape, you know, the rest of this year into next year, you know, what are some of the things that you're looking for to kind of help you understand what is what is happening? Is it going to be interest rates on a macro level? Is it going to be something, you know, locally or, you know, regionally that will, um, you know, help the industry? Uh, What are some of those drivers? Yeah, I think the main thing I'm looking for, like everybody else, is a pause in interest rates, at least some sort of clear path as to where we're going to end up. And then, when I sit down with buyers, I can say, hey, this is where you're going to get debt. This is where you're going to be able to execute. 
And if the Fed forecasts lowering interest rates, then they can underwrite some cap rate uh, uh, compression, which allows them to be more aggressive on values. And then the other side of it is, you know, we're all struggling with this, but just the narrative of San Francisco right now. I mean, I live here, my family's here, but you talk to friends in other cities and states and they're asking like, what's going on? You know, all I'm hearing in the news is this negative stuff that's going on with the homeless and the robberies. And then you're here, it's actually not that bad. And so we need to change the narrative a little bit and that yeah. will help get buyers excited about buying again. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, going forward, um, what do you think might be some of, some of the challenges? Um, do you think the interest rate environment is still going to be something that's going to be tough to overcome? Um, when you sit to try to make a deal happen and your financing folks are, you know, involved there as well, you know, what are some of those things that, uh, you know, you, you guys work really hard to help them, um, you know, over, overcome essentially? Yeah, debt's a big one. I mean, a bulk of our financing was done by First Republic, and we're still working with that institution as they go through their growing pains and their transition. And I think as that starts to settle in and as they emerge under their new you know, Chase head or Chase preferred, whatever they're going to be, or some new lending institutions come in and are comfortable with the rent control market, it's going to go a long way. And if people feel like they can get debt and have assurance that these lenders will close and close in a swift fashion, that's going to help a lot. And for us being able to execute at decent values. Yeah. Um, I'd like to end on, on, you know, a bit of a positive note here also. Um, so one of the things that you and I touched upon in our, in our conversation, you know, getting ready for this call was, um, you know some of the operators who are going through some tough times um you know it's it's more of a of a of a scenario in which they're in you know particularly at what rate do they you know borrow you know what what kind of loan and when is that expiring and that kind of thing rather than sort of a you know systemic issue right in the in the in the industry that's that's sort of um you know really causing concern for for the multifamily market uh in San Francisco uh, you know, give us your sort of comment on 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 that. Yeah, San Francisco is a traditionally low leverage market, and so we won't see the the fire sales necessarily due to debt issues. There's obviously what's making the news, like you pointed out to with portfolios. But the bulk of my time here at Colliers, along with my partners, is sitting down with clients, educating them on their options, and helping them get an understanding of where values are more as a data point rather than them coming to us and saying, hey, Dustin, Brad, James, we need to sell this tomorrow. We're in a credit crunch. Let's fire sale. And so that's why you're seeing volume drop off by so much. I think a lot of brokers right now are more of a resource and an educator rather than a broker, which is fine. I and mean, that's the point of us in this market. And as, as it starts to rebound a little bit and people start to make decisions on exiting, we'll be able to coach them through that process. But I don't think you see a large fire sale across the board in San Francisco. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, Dusty, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, we're going to switch over to Alex now. Um, Alex, if you can thank come you. back on, on the screen. Yep, I think I need to share my video.
There we go. Hi, Alex. Good morning. How's it going? Good. Good morning, Vlad. Excellent. Uh, well, thanks for joining us. Um, so let's dive into the uh, retail market here. Um, when you and I spoke um, a few days ago, there were sort of three kind of big highlights that came out of that conversation. I'd like to have us focus on that if that if that's possible. So the first one, uh, you were highlighting the sort of divergence of the retail kind of asset class, right? From kind of food and beverage to, you know, service. Um, the second one uh, that you highlighted is kind of what's happening down, down in Mission Bay uh, as sort of a, you know, positive story. So let's, let's touch upon that. And then finally, the sort of nuance around Union Square as a, as a sub-market. Um, so we'll get into all three of these, but let's first dive into the first one. Tell us a little bit about sort of this divergence of the asset class. What, what, what do you mean by that and, and how is that exhibiting itself? Sure. So um, one of the trends that we're seeing in um, San Francisco tends to be on the forefront of uh, uh, retail trends in, in general um, for a few reasons, but uh, divergence between food and beverage and services and uh, traditional retail soft goods. Um, they're different businesses, um, and San Francisco has been perceived sometimes rightfully and sometimes wrongfully as a challenging market to operate for food and beverage, given the high cost of labor, um, you know, high cost of construction. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, we know that the San Francisco Bay Area is a demographic of, of folks who really care about um, food and beverage, uh, and that food and beverage creates a lot of value for um, uh, large developments, multifamily office, uh, hospitality. And so we're seeing a divergence, certainly in deal structure, where um, large developments, institutional landlords that see the value that that creates, um, uh, are, are able to uh, realize that across you know hundred units of multifamily or hundreds of thousands of square feet of office or you know hundreds of keys of uh, hotels, um, and that's really changing the model where you have some institutional owners that are um, becoming uh, restaurant investors, restaurant owners, um, and so the deal structure is dramatically changing, um, and that to some degree can be true for you know some adjacent services. Um, and then on the other hand, retail, you have retailers um, that are you know out of COVID doing better and better and have had years of uh, slow growth of physical stores um, in in part because of the perception of um, the importance of brick and mortar, but something that retailers know well that is often a surprise is roughly only about 15% of sales for retail as a category are happening online. Um, the brick and mortar you know, store is very important um, and you've seen a huge investment by retailers uh, in physical uh, brick and mortar stores um, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area, certainly. Yeah, yeah. And one of the examples that you brought was what's happening in uh, Springline down, down, down in Menlo Park. Uh, mm -hmm. Tell us how that sort of exemplifies this transition. Yep, uh, that's a great example of, of that um, strategy of, of, of monetization and using retail to drive um, office and multifamily value. Um, and it may be on a larger scale or to a larger degree and really credit to Presidio Bay Ventures for uh, uh, having the, um, the uh, kind of insight or um, um, uh, willing to you know, really put that strategy to a test and a strategy that's been very successful across 200,000 square feet of, of class A office, best in class office, and 186 units of residential. And ultimately the strategy was very successful 
um, the project is now nearly 100% leased. Um, the residential rents are very strong, uh, and the the retail um, is 100% leased to fantastic operators. That's really created a special place. Um, I, no project have we worked on have we gotten the same amount of kind of uh, interaction with the community or outreach of of you know gratitude for for bringing some great uh, food and beverage to that market. Um, and I think that really is going to be the model for a lot of large mixed use developments going forward on the retail side. Yeah, is part of this also driven by the type of retailers that are that are emerging? And if so, what what are you seeing uh, that as a as as a as a transition? Yeah, um, uh, so certainly it it you know on kind of two sides. One, you look at what's relevant to um, a Bay Area consumer of multifamily or or even office. Um, it's high quality, uh, you know, uh, food and beverage or retail, and oftentimes unique. Um, one of the things that I love about San Francisco is the affinity for local food and beverage uh, over um, national. It's one of the few markets where you have a lot of local operators that outperform their national counterparts, um, and not across the board. Um, national operators do well here. We have very high food and beverage uh, sales, but that's something that really resonates with consumers. Um, so whereas you might have developments in other markets um, where the you know national retailers of credit are very important on the food and beverage side, here what really resonates is quality um, and oftentimes local. Um, and um, so I think that is uh, uh, that was certainly what we you know did at, at, at Springline and and you know kind of another divergence or bifurcation of the market where you're seeing those local food and beverage operators as opposed to some of the more um, you know national uh, retailers. Yeah, uh, uh, you know there's a lot of talk about you know AI and data. Obviously, uh, I know retail that's not necessarily news, right? But tell us about some. Uh, you know, maybe some examples of how, you know, data has been helpful in uh, giving you guys insight into, uh, you know, whether the performance of a certain retailer or a certain, uh, you know, asset. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, more and more retailers are looking to make data-driven decisions. Um, I think there's, uh, you know, we we leverage data. We're fortunate to have some great um, uh, tools at, at CBRE that are able to leverage um, some pretty large data sets. Um, we often use that data to support or validate um, uh, decisions that retailers are going to make. Re retail is highly qualitative, um, where you know, a, um, moving to the end of a block or a north side or versus the south side of a block can have tremendous impacts on value. Uh, and that is really hard to quantify in um, using data or, or models. So it can be helpful to a degree. Um, you know, I think data has been very helpful to tell the San Francisco Bay Area story. Um, you hear a lot of uh, bad press and bad news that are typically kind of myopic examples that are not representative of the larger picture. And what retailers, even very knowledge, knowledgeable, experienced retailers are often surprised by is just how much income and wealth there is in this MSA. Right. Um, and that's really why we still see such strong retail demand. Um, this is one of the top MSAs in the country. Right. And for many retailers, one of the top uh, in the world, you know, that they're looking to have exposure to. Um, and in the market from a retail standpoint, that for certain retail product types is very supply constrained. Yeah. Um, really quickly, and this is a little bit of a uh, tangent, but, you know, the city was very stringent or was becoming very um, very stringent prior to the pandemic around formula retail. Are are you seeing from sort of anecdotal or actual examples of the city even 
you know, loosening up some of some of their, you know, thinking around that and, you know, given the retail has has hurt um, to ensure that it could be more successful? Yeah, um, uh, it's a good question about what, you know, changes that might happen at the city. Um, uh, I don't have much insight into that, but in terms of, you know, uh, the, you know, public's perception, um, I think a great example, the marina where I live, you've had a number of formula retailers recently that have gone through the conditional use permit process. Uh, most recently, Missouri, um, uh, Vans, Sweetgreen. Um, Sweetgreen's open. I think that um, people in that neighborhood are, are realizing that national retailers um, can be really accretive to the fabric of a neighborhood. They can drive uh, traffic. Uh, they have the ability to spend money on advertising and, and drive people and actually help um, you know some local retailers. Uh, so I think the public's perception is certainly shifting. People want... Um, occupied storefronts, vibrant neighborhoods. Right. Um, and I think the formula retail, you know, restrictions in, in many cases have, have prevented that, um, made it more challenging. And um, it's actually not a, a tremendously difficult um, process to go through a conditional use permit. However, if you're a national retailer looking at half a dozen markets across the country, um, and none of them have this encumbrance or this this obstacle of waiting, you know, for seven to 12 months to go through the conditional use permit process. Sometimes it can, you know, uh, if you've got 10 markets you want to be in and five open to buys, meaning five five uh, stores that you can open for a, a calendar or fiscal year, it might push San Francisco um you know, down one, it's a, uh, right. on the list. And so it's a, it's a big perceived challenge. Um, and, uh, something that we're, we work closely with our clients to help them understand, um, uh, like Missouri and, and, and Vans, um, and, and, uh, they were both ultimately successful. So I, I think that, um, you know, there's hopefully going to be a change as we see kind of the need for, um, you know, a lot of neighborhoods to, to fill vacant storefronts, um, or to bring those national retailers that really can be, um, you know, helpful and accretive to uh, local retail. Yeah, hundred percent. So let's switch to Mission Bay and Union Square. So tell us about the Mission Bay success and um, what's driven that. And maybe uh, take a step back and tell us, you know, a little bit about sort of in general uh, how that market is performing today. And then let's get into some of the some of some of the drivers of it. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, Mission Bay, the Mission Bay story might be one of the lesser known um, uh, kind of, you know, real estate uh, stories, but it is emerging as kind of one of the most successful um, or um, most in-demand neighborhoods, uh, certainly in San Francisco and, and oftentimes in the Bay Area. To your point about formula retail, there's no formula retail restriction um, in Mission Bay. So um, national retailers are um, typically, you know, principally permitted or permitted by right in the neighborhood. Um, and you have, you know, a lot of institutional owners that are investing, um, uh, you know, heavily into the retail, um, into their public open space. Um, and you've got some non-traditional owners. You've got the San Francisco Giants developing, um, Mission Rock with Tish Inspire, um, yeah. and the Golden State Warriors, um, uh, retail at, uh, Thrive City at Chase Center. And, um, you know, both of those owners are very, very committed to, the, you know, creating great neighborhoods in San Francisco and create great experiences for the community and for fans. Um, but the reason ultimately that Mission Bay has emerged as such a successful neighborhood for a retailer, for a retailer, or, you know, that there, there's been such demand is you're not dependent on one stream of traffic. One of the challenges for retailers looking at San Francisco um, is that you have uh, a pretty um, 
distinct separation between where people live and where people work. Uh, the neighborhoods tend to be uh, mostly residential and our, you know, CBD financial district is, is um, mostly commercial. And so uh, neighborhoods can sometimes be busy nights and weekends and the financial district can be uh, even today with a lower occupancy, still one of the densest places in the country with great retail sales, but much busier Monday through Friday um, than nights and weekends. Uh, and if your, you know, uh, cost to open a location is similar um, those, that's a challenging proposition. Mission Bay is one of the only neighborhoods that has a true mix of residential and office. Um, right. And of the office that's there, a lot of it's life science, uh, biotech, um, research that's centered around UCSF, some affiliated, some um, you know, separate. And those are folks who are still in the office, oftentimes five days a week, uh, given the nature of, of, of life science work, and not being able to do that remotely. Um, and the amount of people there is astounding. You know, um, uh, Salesforce pre-COVID uh, had an estimated 10,000 people that worked downtown San Francisco. The UCSF Mission Bay campus alone has nearly 15,000 um, people between employees, patients, um, and right. other uh, groups. Um, they're big traffic drivers and, and big consumers of food and beverage. Uh, on top of that, you have Uber's headquarters, um, Visa's uh, headquarters that you know um, will open in the future. And um, all of those different traffic streams are huge traffic drivers. Um, and that makes a big difference for retail. Um, and also the Chase Center, right? You, you, you haven't mentioned the yep. Chase Center, but that I imagine that's a big driver as well, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you have uh, Oracle, uh, Giants Ballpark, and then Chase Center on top of all of that. Those are additional traffic drivers. So Dead & Company just played at uh, um, Oracle. It had a three-day tour, and that injected an estimated $31 million into the local economy. Um, and for perspective, the last Dreamforce, which many retailers see as one of the biggest you know, events in San Francisco, one of the biggest traffic drivers, or, um, uh, uh, injected an estimated $40 million. Um, and you know, those events are not far and few between. There's quite a few, and they uh, lift, you know, um, that tide lifts all boats in, for retail in the Bay Area, but the strongest effect is certainly, you know, proximate to Oracle. Yeah. Same thing for uh, Chase Center. The events that are at um, Chase are huge traffic drivers, driving a lot of people who um, want to patronize retail. So more deadheads is what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> who are great retail customers. Right. If you, uh, during that exactly. concert, went to Harmonic Brewing at, yeah. at Chase Center, uh, yeah. you would have been, uh, you, you probably couldn't have gotten a drink. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, last last point here is the nuance around Union Square. So obviously, uh, you know, some news around, you know, what's happening with, you know, Westfield Mall there, but that's not the only story, obviously. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the successes of, uh, you know, recent mm -hmm. there. Yeah, um, uh, there are certainly some challenges in, in Union Square, no question. Um, I think bad news um, is, is often um, uh, louder than good news. Um, and, you know, one of the, uh, um, and no question, um, a lot of the, the, the news in Union Square uh, around Nordstrom's or, or, or um, you know, retailer closures are challenging, um, but that's not really the full story. Uh, ultimately, there's been a huge amount of activity, positive activity in Union Square, um, specifically in the luxury, luxury adjacent um, segment. So Carmina is opening it or opened at 54 grand. Um, Brightling at, uh, is opening at 299 post. Um, Rolex um, at 255 and 259 uh, post. And uh, those are all 
2022 or 2023 deals. Prado bought 166 grant, Chanel bought 340 post uh, for $63 million and are, you know, planning a flagship St. Laurent has doubled their footprint, uh, more than doubled from three to 7,000 square feet at um, 90 grant. Uh, and so there's, you know, a, a huge amount of positive news and, and that's all uh, fairly recently. There's a quite a bit more activity, um, um, you know, going on that just reinforces that San Francisco for national and international brands um, is a market that you have to have a store, um, that you have to have a location in it and a market where those retailers perform very well. It's a very affluent market um, and for uh, retail and luxury category, very supply constrained throughout the Bay Area. Um, and uh, so there are not many options for luxury retailers right. and, and strong demand. Right. Well, Alex, uh, we have to uh, jump over to the to the next conversation, but I appreciate your insights. Um, and thank you, thank you for that for that update. Um, Rebecca, you're you're up next and the industrial side of things here. Um, thanks, Vlad. Thanks, Alex. Um, Rebecca, good morning. Um morning. how is the industrial market? going tell us a little bit about maybe a little bit of a market overview you have a purview of sort of the broader bay area so i know this is sort of a san francisco focused event but i think a lot of it happens outside of the city in terms of industrial too so maybe a little bit of a perspective on on the market um you know across the region yeah thanks thanks vlad you know i think we've all we're all kind of getting used to the new normal of the industrial sector and the reality is it's a very good normal when you think in the grand scheme of things, we had such unprecedented demand that came online with the onset of COVID that really pushed for all of the big e-commerce companies like Amazon's to really mobilize and expand their supply chains almost overnight um, as the adoption of e-commerce really picked up. For example, in the first quarter of 2019, about 17% of retail sales were online. And that increased to about 23% during the second quarter of 2020. And so that just caused a tremendous growth in the sector from a demand perspective. And, you know, since then, we've been experiencing tremendous growth. You know, in the Bay Area alone, over the last five years, we've had over 20% annual rent growth for Class A product, which is right. very impressive. Um, but one thing to keep in mind is just how things relate kind of historically. And I was just looking at some stats actually while we were on this, um, and I'm going to give Los Angeles as an example. So in 2006, the vacancy rate was 1.4%. In 2009, during the great financial crisis, vacancy increased to 3.2%. Um, 21, you know, as things are really picking up, we had 0.5% vacancy, and today we're at 1.5%. So we're getting so much feedback on this rising vacancy, but the reality is everything is extremely low. Right. In the East Bay, we're at 2.4%. In the Inland Empire, we're at 2.7%. You know, these markets remain extremely strong. Um, you mentioned e-commerce was a uh, was a uh, was a uh, uh, you know saw a, a, a bump during 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 COVID. Um, from the data that uh, you know the tenants you're working with and the yeah. and 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 the landlords um, has that remained about the same? Uh, have our habits changed? Um, or uh, is there a different shift happening? Yeah. So, you know, we are still expecting a big push in e-commerce over the next 10 years. 
we're expecting e-commerce as a percentage of sales to go up to like in the mid thirties over the next 10 years. So we are expecting more adoption and it's really more diversified as well. Um, when you look at the top users of industrial space this year, kind of year to date, um, the biggest users are third-party logistics companies who are providing, you know, logistics services to other companies and general retail and wholesale. So, and that's about 50% of the total demand right now. And what I think is important to look at in those stats is there's a lot of e-commerce buried in those stats as companies are sure. looking to fulfill their e-commerce as well as their store delivery. Um, another interesting data point is the biggest increase as a percentage of last year in demand is in the auto sector and the food and beverage sector. So um, we're seeing a lot more demand in those sectors. And obviously in the Bay Area, Tesla is a user that's been very active and remains very active and it continues to take new space as they're expanding their supply chain and delivering more cars. Um, so, you know, those are important points to keep in mind. And I know as we're looking at the users, we're thinking like, what is driving these decisions? And I think one of the biggest drivers always, you know, everyone thinks location, location and real estate. And that is particularly true in, you know, for all of our panelists here. But when, you know, one interesting stat that our CB research team has come up with is the fixed facility costs as a percentage of PL is about three to six percent. And the um transportation costs are 45 to 70 percent. Wow. Okay. So you know, these, you know, we've obviously seen a lot of rent growth. We're still seeing a lot of rent growth. And it makes sense for these users to pay higher rents in an effort to lower their transportation costs. They're going to be at a, at a net positive. Yeah. How are some of the, you know, macro stories impacting the industry? So the obvious one, obviously, is around, um, you know, the interest rates, um, yeah. you know, that's going to be, you know, a, a talking point for everyone yeah. here today. It's a painful talking point. Yeah, I'm sure. About. I'm sure. But uh, but let's address it quickly. Uh, yeah. You know, what what are how is it driving the market? You know, how is it yeah. um, in, impacting what's 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 happening? So, you know, the reality is interest rates have increased by double over the last 18 months. And just even thinking over the last three months, we've seen the five-year treasury go up by 65 basis points, 10-year by 50 basis points, you know, and there's still um, a lot of uncertainty, as Dustin mentioned, on where rates are going in the future. Uh, you know, a lot of groups have been thinking kind of over the last year, maybe I'll just put some short-term debt on hoping things get better. And obviously that has not been the case. And we don't have a lot of feelings on where things are going. So interest rates are definitely increasing. The other, and you know, the other thing is that the lenders have become extremely selective. So not only are they looking at location, they're looking at the quality of the buildings and also the quality of the tenants and the credit. Credit has become an extremely, you know, item under the magnifying glass. Right. Um, and as lenders have gotten more careful and are looking to make sure that their loans are kind of vetted and lenders will be able to pay back their loans, they've also increased their debt service coverage ratios. And they're even though they're not, you know, a lot of borrowers are able to get interest only loans, 
they're looking at the debt service coverage with 30-year amortization just to kind of stress-proof things. And as a result, borrowers are getting much lower proceeds than they were able to get historically. And that's really limiting how much equity that borrowers can get out because they're so much more dependent on debt, which is more challenging for debt. You know, another thing that's been very challenging for everyone is lenders are really requiring SOFR-based debt for any value-add opportunities, as well as obviously construction loans. And SOFR today is over 5%. And the spreads are anywhere from 300 to 500 over SOFR, depending on the risk profile. So you're in the eights on any kind of value-add opportunity. And so investors really need kind of an upside story with a big mark-to-market um, or, you know, a wonderful new development. And so that's made the borrowing environments and capital markets environment a lot more challenging. Yeah. Um, Rebecca, uh, in some of the other uh, segments of the commercial real estate market, there have been stories of, uh, you know, owners giving back properties to lenders. I have not seen any yeah. of these stories in industrial um, do you anticipate any kind of hardship like this in, in terms of, you know, the owner lender relationship where, uh, you know, some operators may have to do that? We haven't seen it and we're not forecasting it. Um, I think that in general, you know, his, when I first started, you know, almost 16 years ago, debt was very, was a very low, you know, it wasn't a debt forward kind of sector. As debt became so incredibly cheap and like 3% debt, people did obviously start taking advantage of that. And it helped them, you know, we'd have value add funds buying poor real estate because the debt was so attractive. Um, but even today, we, are, we aren't seeing any signs of distress. I mean, we've had some groups contact us, hey, you know, I want to get out of this earlier than when I was forecasting, but we're not really seeing signs of debt distress. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's happening um, on the development side? Um, what kind of activity are we seeing across across the region? Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a good leeway from the debt story because construction debt has become extremely challenging to yep. secure and the proceeds have become much lower. In addition, municipalities have, you know, created moratoriums and are very much anti-development. And there's also just so much uncertainty. You know, there's so many mandates that are coming out. I just saw something that there might be like a surcharge in Paris, a new more, you know, a new kind of thing that's going to vote. And so there's just a lot more uncertainty for developers coupled with, you know, like I was just mentioning the entitlement challenges. I mean, to get a site entitled in Hayward could take three years today. And so, and I was talking to our debt team and, you know, it's very hard to even get a construction loan just for land. You know, there aren't really land loans available today. You've got to basically be ready to put the shovel in the ground before you can get the land. So, you know, where it's construction starts compared to a year ago are about 50 cent, 50% off. So we are seeing a big dip in new construction, which is really a great thing from a um, market fundamental perspective. Uh, over the last couple of years, given the success of the industrial sector, there's been um, a, a lot of institutional and sort of you know private investors putting money in funds, yeah. really going after the market uh, yeah. significantly. Are you seeing uh, the the you know profile of of the investors change at all? 
Um, are there some new entrants into the market? Um, has that had an impact that's noticeable? Yeah. Well, one of the best um, you know, signs of the health of the market is the fact that Prologis remains very active. Right. They just made the over $3 billion acquisition of those Blackstone assets. And they have the best parameter on the market on earth because they're the largest industrial landlord on earth. And they are very bullish long run. Um, and that was a four cap, but it was really in place, but it's a five and three quarters market cap. And they are still looking at rent growth on top of that. So Prologis as a very sophisticated landlord remains bullish on the market. In addition, we're seeing a lot of separate accounts um, look and really differentiate themselves today because a lot of the separate accounts do, are not debt dependent. So they tend to be more all cash buyers in most cases, which is a big differentiator today. Now, that's not to say that they're ignorant of the debt market. They're very um, focused on where is the debt and how does that play relative to my peers that might need debt. Right. But um it has helped because sellers are also very cautious when selecting buyers about having any risk when you're choosing a buyer that does need debt to close. Most yeah. of the bigger institutions have lines so they can put debt on post-close, but there's been so much um, interest rate fluctua fluctuations these days that you know everyone's kind of very cautious about where debt will be, even over the 30-day period, which is really unprecedented. Right, 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 right. Yeah, and um, we're also seeing a lot more, to your point, private capital and high net worth capital. We just closed on a like $22 million deal in Vegas, and it was a Canadian group that really, they own a large portfolio in Canada and brand new building, and they really wanted to own in the market, and they were a great buyer. So a lot more private capital as well. Yeah, and and there are some other international folks. Uh, you know, Goodman's name I feel like has yeah. popped up a few times, yeah. both in Southern California and Northern California. Yeah. Um, do Do you anticipate more of that happening? Uh, you know, will will the you know West Coast markets continue to be attractive for for investors from you know abroad as well? Yeah, absolutely. Some of the global capital sources are limited by their percentage that they can purchase of sure. an asset. Um, Goodman doesn't have that restriction and Goodman is really active on the development side. They're buying that site in Vernon and they've tied up a site in um, the Bay Area. Um, but I think the West Coast is still considered one of the premier U.S. markets that everyone that has an industrial mandate really wants to have a large percentage of their portfolio in the West Coast. Yeah. Um, let's close with kind of a, an, an outlook question okay. and, you know, over the next, you know, 12, 24 months, I mean, I know it's hard to predict the future, yeah. but I am, I am curious, you know, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking at in terms of, uh, you know, how the market is shaping up that will, you know, give you a sense where, where things are. Yeah. Well, I think that there's going to be continue to be a flight to quality for users as they're getting more and more advanced. A lot of these users need heavy power, you know, functional sites, you know, extra trailer parking, clear height power, not only for material handling systems, but also for the manufacturing sector, because we are seeing a lot more manufacturing, particularly in the in the Bay Area. And so I'm expecting to see, you know, continued rent growth for that you know, for those class A buildings. And, you know, at this point, I would think kind of anywhere from seven to 10% in 24 rent growth. Right. Okay. Interesting. 
Excellent. Rebecca, thank you so much. Um, um, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. We're going to switch over to Eric and Nick now uh, to talk about investment sales and leasing. Nick, if you can, uh, there we go. Nick, you're on mute just as an FYI. So um, gentlemen, good morning. Um, um, uh, You guys have maybe one of the most exciting uh, things going on in the market these days. So (laughs) let's let's dive dive into that. Um, uh, I'm going to ask both of you sort of the, you know, same question here. So, you know, feel free to kind of, you know, jump in, but, um, a bit of a market overview, uh, we don't necessarily have to focus on, you know, the negative side of things. I mean, some of those, uh, stories are obvious and we've heard enough of them. Um, I would love to hear from you kind of a perspective on the market, uh, but, you know, things that you would like to highlight that, that are, that are also positive. Uh, Nick, why don't we start with you? Well, thank you, Vlad. Appreciate it. Um, you know, there's so much to talk about and so little time, but uh, we'll we'll do our best. I, I think workplace intelligence is really top of mind for most people, um, and uh, it really remains undefined how people are going to be using space going forward. And uh, so, it, there are just so many different ways that tenants are trying to accommodate. Uh, their employees to bring them back to the office, right? And I think the goal is, you know, coming back four days total a week versus, you know, bookending the weekends with Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday sort of schedules. Um, but doing that, you know, they're they're trying to provide, you know, food and beverage experiences, whether that's a fitness class or a speaker or something like that to differentiate uh, themselves from, you know, the competitors and get people back. Because I think one thing's for sure, is that people are more productive in the office than out of the office. So, uh, you know, every firm has their culture. And so they're trying to create experiences by, um, you know, enhancing the office place, whether it's soft seating or, you know, again, food, beverage, that kind of thing. It's uh, really interesting to see how people are morphing in different directions. And there's not one clear answer for how space is being utilized going forward. I think that's that's a real top of mind note that everybody's sort of paying attention to. Yeah. It makes sense. Eric, how about on the, on the investment sales side for you? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> it's been pretty widely documented that, uh, you know, San Francisco is, is going through sort of it's, you know, great reset per se um, as we sort of, you know, work through a lot of factors, right. I call it sort of the factors in the blender where we have sort of the existential, uh, questions about demand going forward. And, you know, I think there is pretty widespread belief that the the new norm, wherever it settles, the next point is still being worked through, but, you know, three and a half, four days a week, hopefully. So people will have a better understanding of that. Um, and then we have, as other panelists have mentioned, you know, ex- you know, very rapid rising debt costs, which has kind of thrown a lot of things uh, in the air. And quite frankly, just a lack of liquidity uh, for office buildings in the debt markets right now as well, which, you know, I, I kind of compare it to multifamily and industrial, um, you know, rising interest rates are are challenging, but eventually once they sort of stabilize, there's just, it's a repricing exercise. You know, the fundamentals in those two verticals are still really strong, whereas office, there's there's still a lack of, you know, understanding and with without that data and understanding, it's just really hard for capital to pursue office and whatnot. Um, sure. All that being said, I, I mean, I, 
uh, sit in our in our uh, weekly leasing meeting to JLL. We had ours this morning. I mean, I came out of that with you know a lot of optimism about what people are starting to really see on the ground. And I don't know if anyone's mentioned AI yet, but it's kind of the the buzz uh, word these days. And it's not going to solve everything, but it's the new you know wave of technology that's starting to really take off, and it's getting you know pretty much all of the VC funding these days. And it's really based in San Francisco. Um, and so we've seen it when you look back in, you know, 10, 20, 30 years, you know, San Francisco falls hard, but it bounces back, you know, right. very quickly because it's still a, you know, major hub for innovation. Um, so we can get into, you know, what that means for office sales right now and what we're seeing in real time. But, you know, I do feel a sense of optimism that this sort of, you know, bottoming out and then the sort of reemergence and reset of the office market is ultimately, it's, it's painful, it's tough, um, but it's, it's, you know, kind of healthy and, you know, quite frankly, exciting. Yeah, makes sense. Now, there have been a few transactions over the last couple of months. Um, you're also working on one at uh uh you know 60 Spear. What are you what are you seeing in terms of activity? What are you seeing in terms of interest? Um um some insights that you you know you can you can share from those experiences. Yeah, uh ironically, none of them have closed yet. So everyone's <laughs> waiting with bated breath to actually have one of them closed. Uh, despite a lot of the uh, publications saying that they have been, but I, you know, it's it's really interesting. Uh, I started my career basically in '09, my brokerage career in '09, uh, and it, the market was very similar. There was a handful of trades that everyone was watching very closely. You know, pricing was pretty similar to where the anecdotes are, you know, shaking out today. Um, and it's it's super informative because every comp everyone is just completely focused on to, because it tells you where the market is and ultimately sort of where that repricing is occurring. You know, you look at the set of comps or you know hopefully comps that are you know out there right now at you know 550 Cal, 350 Cal, 180 Howard, uh, 60 Spear, 123 Townsend. Um, they're all different, and I would say that the focus on you know these micro locations on building quality, obviously on tenancy. Most of them are, are, you know, very high vacancy corporate sales, but they all tell their own story and I think are very informative of, you know, where it is the, you know, the deep value add transaction price today. And ultimately, what does that mean for the rest of the market for, you know, the multi-tenanted buildings that are 50 to 80% lease, et cetera. So, uh, for example, but uh, all that being said, um, you know, 60 Spear, we were extremely encouraged by the reception that property got on the market. We uh, ran a very efficient process, probably as efficient as a process we've run for many years. And we had, you know, over 60 tours, um, you know, 160 CAs, over 10 bids in the first round, et cetera. So it really kind of felt like 2016, 17 again for us for a fleeting moment. But ultimately, the things that really you know stood out despite its high vacancy were, you know, Spear Street Corridor, people love that location, uh, you know, close to the water, Embarcadero. Most of the buildings, including 60 Spear, had water views on, on a majority of the property. Uh, and the building has really good bones. It's side core. It has 14-foot deck-to-deck ceiling heights. It's a very efficient building. Um, and people really look at that as, you know, they looked at that as a winner, um, whether they, you know, buy it for a cheap basis and do cheaper deals for the time being, or they, you know, embark on a pretty substantial renovation. People, you know, they kind of looked at it as stock picking of this building they think can outperform in a sort of new world and dynamic that we're entering into. Yeah. And what about the investor profile? Has that surprised you? Has that changed? Um, is it sort of the groups that you thought would come uh to the to the you know play field or or is it a different set of uh 
you know, com- com- companies? Yeah, what we're seeing regionally and, and quite frankly, nationally across the platform is, you know, high net worth buyers are leading the, leading the charge right now. And that's very typical of what we've seen in years past. You know, they, they look at the world differently. They're focused on basis more than IRRs. They look at a 10 plus year hold and they would look at to take advantage of these times of sort of dislocation um, as times to come in and make, you know, generational type plays. And, you know, you've seen it in the past, people, uh, they tend to look pretty smart uh, playing right now. So, you know, we did have a good amount of high net worth groups, both, you know, regionally in the Bay Area from across the country. We did have some international groups. So it was really encouraging to see, um, you know, institutions are, are slower moving right now. You know, they will reemerge. We're talking to a bunch of our clients who say, look, we, we understand this. Uh, we don't want to miss out. But, you know, you look at a lot of those groups, they have existing portfolios that they're working through. It's hard for them to take something that I see, even though it might be priced amazingly and say, hey, we already have, you know, four assets in the market. We want to buy another one. It's like, how do you, with a, with a lack of data and comps, it's really hard to make that argument. So um, we're seeing both. We're seeing the institutions start to poke around. But, um, but high net worth right now is, is, is sort of emerging as sort of the top buyer pool at this, at this point in time. Yeah, interesting. Nick, when you and I spoke uh, in preparation for this call, one of the things you said, it seems like we're you know, bouncing at the bottom here or, or close to the you know, bottom of the, of the market. Uh, tell us about that and kind of what, what gives you that uh, you know, insight. Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit about what Eric said. It's about demand. Uh, and we're seeing, um, you know, a lot of companies out there uh, looking for space. Um, you know, as, as Eric mentioned, you know, AI is a, a top of mind, a big topic. Robotics is out there. Electronic vehicles are out there. Uh, machine learning is out there. But also there's some tech demand. There's also some, uh, a lot of professional service demand. And uh, I think that, you know, being an advisor of, of tenants, everybody's you know wants to catch the bottom, right? And uh, we're we're advising people that we're either there or getting there, and the the, the small difference it's going to make between bottom and now is going to be very insignificant. They should just get back to work and 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 run their business. But I mean, you have you know, I don't know. 50, 60 clients or tenants out there that are over 50,000 square feet. Um, they're looking Anthropic, OpenAI, Snap, Airbnb, First Citizens Bank, you know, JP Morgan, Schwab, KPMG. They're all looking for over 50,000 square feet. And so that's really good demand and a really good subset and a good diverse demand, right? So you have a little bit of AI, you have a little bit of tech and a lot of professional services. And uh, some of these are going to, you know, some of them are already committed and, and are in leases. And as Eric said, you know, they're not done yet, but they're going to be done. And uh, so once you, you know, I think, you know, Dustin made a point earlier about, you know, we, we look at statistics in arrears, right? And, and everything that's on a go forward basis um, is really what we're living day in and day out. And so the media and everybody doesn't know what's, what's actually happening today. And some of the um, price points that landlords are making transactions at really can't go any further because, and, and Eric knows more about this than I do, that lender covenants won't allow for some of these transactions to occur. Uh, there are $250 per square foot tenant improvements uh, packages are about commissions are very, very large, and there's a lot of free rent being given out. And so we're trying to see if those deals actually can happen and be structured in, in this environment. Yeah. 
you you had mentioned that um, on top of sort of flight uh, flight to quality, but there's a bit of a bifurcation in the market in a sense that some professional services firms have a little bit of a different outlook than some of the technology firms. Uh, tell us about that insight and what what that means. Well, I, I think that you know it's always been the case that professional service firms really know where they're going to be a little bit longer down the road than uh, tech firms. And so we're seeing more professional services doing blend and extends for longer terms with landlords, again, subject to lender covenants and approvals. But, uh, you know, tech tech companies are really sort of kicking the can down the road. Um, the big ones like the Airbnbs, they want to differentiate and repot from where they are. Um, the open AIs out in the mission are considering being in a safer neighborhood closer to the CBD. Um, but I think that, you know, overall, it's just, uh, it's about, you know, people who can actually plan for the future and, and, uh, you know, draw a line in the sand and say, okay, we're, we're back from COVID. We know we're getting a good deal. We're, we're paying, you know, 20, 30, 40% less than what we're paying now. Uh, and with the savings of right sizing, uh, from let's say 40,000 square feet to 20,000 square feet, uh, you know, Gibson Dunn and Crutcher did that, did that to the Embarcadero. It's, it's, you know, the savings are there. And so it makes sense to for, make a long-term commitment in San Francisco. Yeah. You also mentioned, Nick, uh, in our conversation that, uh, there, you know, prospective tenants are doing extra due diligence on their part about, about the landlords, <laughs> Uh, tell us a little bit about that and kind of how how that's uh, exhibited itself. Right, it's it's just a phenomenon. You know, being in the business for the last thirty five years is my fourth cycle. So, uh, you know, this is not a new subject. It's just about SNDAs being signed and making sure that the landlord performs to you know the covenants of the lease. Uh, again, you know, there there are several instances where. Tenant improvement allowances need to be put in escrow. You know, the commissions need to be put in escrow because, uh, you know, uh, the motivations of a landlord or operator are, could be different than a lender. And not that the operator or the developer is, is in the wrong. They're just meeting the market. And so um, I think, Eric, you know, there's over $3.7 billion of CMBS loans maturing by the end of next year. So that's going to cause a lot of turmoil in the marketplace. And so uh, it's a little bit of a buyer beware situation when, when you're getting into bed with a landlord. But uh, there are enough great landlords in the market that um, have control of the funds and have a control of their lender or have a cooperative agreement so that they can fund the deals that they need to. Yeah, interesting. Um, Eric, you touched upon this a little bit, but um, just wanted to address uh, sort of you know the you know the real impact of you know the interest rates on on your side of the business. Um, tell us about that. You know what are what are some of the biggest hurdles? Uh, not just the obvious ones, but maybe how it's displaying itself. Yeah, like, as I mentioned earlier, I mean we have sort of the combo of of you know rapidly rising rates with you know, a lack of liquidity. So that, that's a really challenging. I mean, as Rebecca mentioned, you, you're, you know, your debt these days is pricing, you know, for industrial, you know, high, you know, eight to 9% for office, it's pretty much north of 10% if you can get a loan. So that's tricky. Um, and as I mentioned, you know, every sale that's being contemplated right now, the buyers are going to be all cash and they're going to take it down and then hope to you know, put debt on it at a point in time in the future where there's there, there's a market to to finance into, which is which is obviously really tough. So 
Um, that is on sort of the acquisition side. On the existing lender side, obviously, there's a lot of data coming out about loan maturities and expirations and, and some distress in the market. And, you know, there will be. Um, I, I think when you look at the GFC and what happened there, I think everyone anticipated there being this wave of foreclosures and distress. Um, oddly enough, there was really only a handful that occurred uh, in the 09, 10 mm-hmm. timeframe. And I think everyone was surprised by that. Um, it's hard to say exactly how this time will correlate. I think it probably could be a little bit more, but ultimately, as Nick just mentioned, you know, you look at the top 20 buildings in town, even the top 40, um, they're very well capitalized, established landlords, their core funds or REITs um, that are, you know, generally have no debt or very low LTVs. Um, so I, I anticipate there's going to be very, very minimal distress in that, in that um, segment. Um, there are going to be some tough situations. Some of them have been reported or out in the news, and you know they will take time to sort themselves through as they often do. But what we're seeing from a lot of the lender environment is, you know, these these lenders don't have a mindset to go in and and play hardball and take these properties back. They don't really want them. Right. They don't want to take a a property back at a you know a discount to their loan and then have to write it down or sell it for a loss. I mean you know, necessity is going to breed some of this stuff, but there's not this huge overarching thing that we're seeing real time where these lenders are going to come in and try to play hardball. So I, I do expect there to be more extensions, workouts, pay downs. You know, people are going to try to work through stuff to the best they can to find solutions. It's, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but I really don't an- anticipate it being the sort of apocalypse like you would read in some of the publications that are covering the, the market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Nick, you mentioned workplace intelligence, aka workplace strategy, and uh, you know companies really working hard to kind of uh, attract folks, uh, you know, back into the office, trying to get to that four-day norm. Um, what are some of the amenities that you feel have kind of come into you know play? Used to be bocce ball courts. Uh, we have so many of them that I think we have an Olympic team from the Bay Area. Probably uh, they'll be fielded sometime soon. <laughs> Uh, but jo- joking aside, like what, what are some of the things that, um, you know, whether it's landlords, whether it's tenants that are, you know, really looking for to, you know, make, make that happen for them? I think it's a great question. I, I think both landlords and tenants are just looking to activate their spaces, right? Um, take um, <clears throat> hardscapes, make them into softscapes, and then add a service, whether that's a food truck or a beverage cart or a fancy restaurant, uh, and really sort of embrace more of a New York uh, slash Chicago vibe where you see sort of the indoor-outdoor solarium type environments that, uh, you know, really tracked um, people. And it, it's all about, you know, what my kids say, it's about a vibe, dad, it's a vibe. And uh, it's, uh, it's something that it's really interesting, because, you know, some people uh, are doing gaming rooms. And, and when you say gaming, you say, okay, what, what's that mean? Well, it doesn't mean just a pool table or a ping pong table, it means, you know, really cool, um, you know, slot machines and, 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 you know, all the old pachinko and that kind of stuff. You walk into a, a place that's really a, a true gaming uh, room. Um, and it's just, it's just interesting to see how much money is being put into the amenitization of buildings and spaces. In the case of landlords, um, it used to be that you had to have a 500,000 or 700,000 square foot building to have a gym. Well, now, you have a 200,000 square foot building building out a full, you know, 4,000 square foot gym. 
which is great amenitization, but it really puts things into perspective as to where landlords are going and where the capital is going. Um, lobbies are no longer lobbies. They're more of, of gathering places. Uh, they're, they're, they're places where you can actually have a meeting. They're not uh, check into a security desk anymore. There are places where you can sit and, and drink and, and hopefully there's an amenity right there that can service what, uh, what you need to do. So, um, it's just, uh, you know, the golf simulator is you can go on and on about all the different things that people are putting in um, to uh, the space. But for the most part, it's just really for tenants. It's, again, it's mostly about culture. It's about right. really trying to either rebrand their culture, uh, bolster their culture or, or just reinvent their culture and, and, and taking those amenities and, and those experiences. You know, it's not just a flight to quality. It's a flight yep. to experience. Right. So. Yep. They're trying to re rejigger everything that to to make it. Uh, hey, I want to be in the office. I want to stay in the office. Yeah. Um, what do you think is happening on the on the on the renewals? Um, you know, and I know it's sort of company by company, obviously, and sector by sector. But just in terms of you know a you know general vibe, <laughs> if you will, in terms of you know uh, you know when companies you know renew, what kind of terms are they looking at? Are they reducing typically their footprints? Um, is that stabilizing or normalizing, or, or do we still have a ways to go before we we figure that out? It's all over the place, Vlad. Honestly, I, I think that, you know, generally blend and extends are being accepted by landlords. Uh, blend and extends for last are certainly being accepted uh, uh, by landlords, meaning that they're renewing, but for less space. Um, certainly, uh, you know, the, nine times out of 10, this, the space is being renewed for less rent, um, low capital. Tech companies are really, like I said before, kicking the can down the road, doing you know one, two, three year extensions with very little uh, capex, very little free rent. But it's just uh, again, sort of re re understand what they're they're trying to do. But you know, I, I think that renewals, you know, before you look at a typical JLL or CV or or, or East Deal package, and renewal probability was ninety five to one hundred percent, right? And that's changed a little bit. Never that high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that changed a little bit. And so, um, you know, there are a lot of options out there, right? And right. so tenants that wouldn't ever touch a sublease before are looking at subleases, right? And uh, so, you know, we're still have some absorption to do in that regard, but it's, you really can write your own ticket these days. And so the, it's really hard um, to give a probability on a renewal. I, I know here at 44 Montgomery with Beacon and Calsters, we you know fight claw and scratch to get every renewal we can uh, just because it's the least capital and typically you know people don't want to want to invest a capital expenditure to go to go move. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric, um, you know, years ago I spoke to a uh, you know developer who you know made made a comment about you know the Bay Area being a high beta market. You know, meaning when you know things go well, they go really fast and well here. When they go bad, they go really fast and bad here too, right? Um, at some point, you know, this will swing back, right? Um, in, in your sort of, you know, guesstimate, um, you know, what, what, what are some of the big things, big hurdles that we need to overcome before we sort of start seeing, you know, some of that positivity um, or, or, or do you even anticipate it, you know, here within, I don't know, 12, 24 months? Yeah, I honestly think we're starting to see it right now, real time. Um, 
what we really needed and need is price discovery um, for people to understand where things are. And, you know, you, you look back, COVID hit. Um, there were a few trades sort of early COVID that, that occurred, but um, there were some core trades that occurred in, you know, 2021. But no value add or multi-tenanted office building in San Francisco sold since COVID uh, hit in 2020, right? So it's been effectively frozen. And I think for a period of time, especially before interest rates shot up, you know, there was sort of the suspended disbelief and, you know, we'll see how things look on the other end of this. And you could still get debt at, you know, 4% and it kind of just sort of stretched things out where everything really started to really come to a head, you know, late last year and into 2023. But um, the market needs data points and needs leasing data points and it needs sales data points for people to understand where things are at. And um, and that's the beginning of it, but I think we're really starting to see, you know, that we're going to start seeing these comps hit in the next 30 days, which I think is, is important. Um, you know, ultimately office sales, they they rely upon fundamentals on the leasing side, which we've talked about. I mean, it's still sorting itself out, but we're, we're feeling a lot of confidence that that's starting to emerge in a constructive way. And, um, you know, ultimately the, the greater capital markets. Um, there needs to be some form of liquidity in the system for office buildings. Um, now, whether that comes from more private lenders or, you know, funds that, that start to lend, um, you know, debt funds, et cetera, that expand and, and take more of an approach on that. I think that'll be really important. But, um, you know, related to San Francisco and the Bay Area, this has happened before. And I, you know, I think everyone agrees this time is different. You have different factors that have caused it that are taking longer to sort out than I think we had all hoped and, and probably will. Um, but San Francisco is still a special place. It's still, you know, effectively the capital of the country, if not the world, for innovation right. and, and growth, which we're seeing real time. Um, it's land constrained. There's, you know, very, very little land left um, to develop new properties. So I think the supply side um, is going to be stable, if not diminish, with, you know, hopefully some more conversion and stuff over time. So, you know, I think when you look at the fundamentals and the things that have always driven the, the region, um, there's a lot to feel confident in. Um, I wish it would happen tomorrow, but you got to start somewhere. And, I, and we are starting to really see it uh, unfold on a daily basis here, which is exciting to be a part of. Yeah, uh, we have a question from from the audience, which actually segues, segues into, into a you know question I also wanted to ask. Uh, and you just mentioned it a little bit. Um, about you know development um, and if and if there's anything you know happening there that you know is of significance. Yeah, you're you're not going to see office development for a, a, a while. Um, again, hope it's sooner rather than later. But right now, the fundamentals do not support uh, an office development at this point in time. Um, so that's going to be constrained for I would say the the near to medium term future. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there about conversions, um, you know, the city's trying to support it, whether it be to residential or life sciences or, or whatnot. Right. Um, we're seeing it in New York. We're seeing it in D.C. Um, I think the, they're ahead of it, which is encouraging to see. There was a big transaction actually disclosed this week on Wall Street that it's, it's a residential conversion. Look, I'm a huge supporter of it. I think everyone agrees that downtown San Francisco, the CBD needs to be more mixed use. It has to have um, more reasons to come here other than nine to five. Um, the, the problem that we've seen in studying it is that the, the buildings need to really um, check a lot of very specific boxes for them to physically work. And then the economics need to be such that, you know, effectively the building needs to be at a, almost a zero basis for it to even kind of get close to working. Um, so hopefully we'll see some of that transpire, but it's, it's not a no brainer by any means. Um, I would say what's encouraging to see is the city is really seeming to step up, you know, the mayor, 
the supervisors, you know, San Francisco, I think notoriously has been a pretty challenging town to do business. There's an adversarial relationship with success and business growth, which doesn't really make sense. And I think people now woken up of to the fact that they need to really lean in and be a partner with people who are trying to help revitalize the city, whether it's developers or tenants or whatever you, sure. you have it. And they're, they're trying to enact policies to make, you know, change and, you know, easing zoning, et cetera, to just make it easier to do business here, which I think from a macro perspective, you know, looking at long-term, I think that's a really encouraging thing to see in the market that we're, you know, really supportive of um, in, in our daily, in our daily business as well. Yeah. Uh, to close our conversation here, I want to ask you both the same question, like I did at the, you know, top of our conversation, you know, as you look into the next, I don't know, 12, 24 months, you know, what are some of the things that you'll be paying special attention to, to give you a sense of what's happening in the market? Nick? Um, sorry, someone just came in my office. Um, I, I think that... I think uh, you should have that person answer the question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'm bullish on San Francisco. I, I think we talked about it very briefly, um, Vlad. It, you know, Cal... Stanford, and the reason I put Cal before Stanford because I went to Cal, UCSF, you know, Santa Clara, San Jose State, we uh, UCSF, we we have an amazing university system here in the Bay Area. We have Sand Hill Road, we have you know the capital of innovation down in Silicon Valley. We have Carmel, we have Napa, we have you know the Tot Lake Tahoe. You can go on and on and on. It, it, this is a great place. It's a wonderful place to live. It's a wonderful place to work. It's a wonderful place to get educated. And uh, th those things are just not going away. And San Francisco, I think it, uh, you, you pointed it out earlier, um, Eric, you know, it's, it's always been very cyclical. And uh, it may not be the 18 to 24 month recovery that we're talking about. Well, we're already in the thick of that. And it's going to be a little longer this time. But it, San Francisco Bay Area is, is here to stay. And, and it's, it's the EMEA, uh, the young people all want to come to California to get educated. Um, and much to their parents' chagrin, a lot of them don't return. They stay here. And those, that, those are the brainchilds of AI. Those are the brainchilds of robotics. Those are the brainchilds of Google, you know, of the past. And it's just one of those things where you know, it's not if, it's when. And so um, in the next 12, 24 months, again, I think we're at bottom, we're recovering, um, development may make, you know, rise again uh, or become feasible again. Uh, some of these conversion conversations may occur. Um, you know, people are creative in the Bay Area. They're not, they don't sit on their thumbs. And I think with a little help from the city of San Francisco, as Eric pointed out, you know, I think, you know, we can really get going again and get back to, you know, where we were before, which is, you know, 2018, 2019. But, but, uh, but to be but to be a little more, um, to be a little bit more specific about that, Nick, are you, you know, looking at whether the interest rates are going to go down, that might make an impact? Are you looking at a couple of uh, maybe more, you know, of these, you know, AI, you know, leases to get signed and see how some of these companies, you know, move forward in terms of expansion, um, you know, what, what, what are some of the things that you'll be kind of look, looking at? Well, it, it's a great question. And, you know, we get the crystal ball all the time, right? Uh, 
And we have we have an election coming up that's pretty important, right? So I mean that's going to drive a lot of it. I, I'm hoping interest rates go down. Um, I I think fundamentally they should and they will. I think we they, they they've done their job with the reset. Um, but again, there's there's so many there are headwinds and tailwinds that we were we're expecting. Okay, and 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 a lot of them are politically driven. Um, so I, I would say that you know. We we would need a perfect storm to continue on a downward trend trend here. I don't right. think that we're we're in that environment. Um, I, I don't know if I can be any more specific than that because I'm not an economist, um, but uh, I, I do read quite a bit, and I do think it, everything we're reading. Uh, about the new new thing, as we discussed before, Michael Lewis, right? We're always going to have the new new thing, right. We're, and and what is going to be the catalyst for that? Yeah, uh, and is is it the economy? Is it the government? I don't know. It's got to be a little bit of both, at least for us in the next twenty four to twenty twelve to twenty four months. Excuse me. Yeah, Eric, uh, your last thoughts. Same same uh, same question to you about some of the, you know, drivers and things you'll be looking for uh, to help you kind of figure out where, where we're going. Yeah. All, all good points by, by Nick, I think more lease transactions, um, more data points on the sales front, um, hopefully just stabilization of interest rates. I'm not even asking for them to, to lower at this point, just stop <laughs> rising. So we have an idea of how debt is going to price in the next 12 to 24 months. Um, and then I just go back to, you know, the real time things that we're seeing, you know, cutting through the headlines. I mean, as I mentioned before, we're seeing these high net worth groups starting to show up on, on office offerings. Um, these are very wealthy family offices or individuals who are putting their own money into investing in downtown San Francisco, whether it be office or other asset types. But that That's significant. And some of the people that are contemplating this are people that are very tapped into a very, you know, a larger economy, um, whether it be tech or whatever you might have it. And but that means something to me because um, people are making bets and they're starting to say, you know, we're betting on San Francisco. So I think the more of that you see, the more it shows something. And um, it's a whole ecosystem of, you know, commercial real estate, how it relates to the tenant side. I mean, it's there's a lot of stuff that's really starting to, to, to bubble and, uh, you know, we're paying attention to all that. But, uh, you know, I do think that the data is going to be very helpful as we get through this. And you know, big resets are, are tough and they're, you know, everyone, everyone gets hurt by them, uh, even brokers. Um, but, you know, naturally they occur and it, I think it creates amazing opportunities um, with buildings being repositioned and amenitized and all that. So, um, you know, those are the things we're paying close attention to that I think we're, we're really starting to see, you know, real time uh, in today's world. And I think that'll continue going forward. The more data I think is just going to help people transact even more and it'll build upon itself. Wonderful. Um, well, Eric, uh, Nick, thank you both. Uh, I'd also want to say thank you again to you. Dusty and Alex and um, Rebecca. And most importantly, you know, thank you, um, Alliance Roofing for being, uh, you know, a, you know, such a generous sponsor for, for this and for other events. Um, enjoy the rest of your week, uh, uh, Rebecca and gentlemen, and we'll be, we'll be in touch soon. Thank you, Vlad. Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was another episode of the Real Perspectives podcast, and we thank you for taking the time to listen to it. Conversations like these help us comprehend our evolving industry better and hopefully provide a perspective that helps you understand the dynamics of commercial real estate. 
If you like this episode, please subscribe to our show and tell your colleagues about it. That is the best way to spread the news and help us remain relevant across the industry. Cheers. Cheers.